Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And uh, Chernobyl has been open to tourists and thousands of people are visiting there each year now, but it's not the only place that has been destroyed by nuclear events. Um, Lisa Radford and uh, Yuani Scarce have visited other places of trauma uh, for a picture essay. And uh, this year and last year, they travelled to Fukushima, Hiroshima, Chernobyl, Kiev, South Dakota, Woomera, and uh, a selection of their 5,000 images are in the latest Art Plus Australia journal. And uh, it's really great to have both of you in the house. Uh, welcome. Um, and yes. I suppose, you know, people usually get intrigued coming to a radio studio. Not so interesting compared to some of the places you've, <laughs> you've been going to. Um, I suppose trauma sites are really fascinating places, but tell us what, what drew you to, to visiting so many different places. I think oh, for me personally, um, I, for my, uh, well, I'm an artist, so I, um, uh, have been researching um, memorials for f- nearly 15 years and also uh, was thinking about how Australia is yet to really recognise uh, First Nations genocide in that sort of memorialisation. So, And uh, it was my interest in architecture and knowing about these other memorials uh, elsewhere in the world and... So, and I uh, have been travelling quite a lot for my, on my own and then um, I was looking for someone else to come with me. So I asked Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> and you went. And I went. It's pretty, um, it was a, a pretty amazing invitation to receive from like a colleague and someone that you mm. work with and whose work that you admire and to be involved in a conversation that would attempt to address some of those, like some of that... Stuff we haven't been able to do. Maybe. Did you take a camera as well, Lisa? Yeah, I mm. mean, very professional iPhones, you know. Oh yeah, it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we were kind of yeah, we just walk. Uh, the invitation was mm. to go, and so we left in December and headed straight to New York to see an exhibition at MoMA called um, "Towards a Concrete Utopia," mm. which addressed some of the monuments that Tito built, um, trying to unite a country. Um, well, unite several places, I guess, mm, mm. to make a country and acknowledge some of the kind of stuff that had gone on in former Yugoslavia or in that in the Balkan region over mm, that time. Because mm, mm. mm. we we were also lucky enough to win a Creative Victoria research grant to undertake that travel as well. So we were pretty excited about you know to be financially supported to do those trips or many trips. So. Mm. Um, yeah, and and as you alluded to, Yuani, I mean, in Australia, we've got such a long way to go to properly marking, acknowledging, and, and memorialising the frontier wars and and a whole mm. bunch of other kind of um, dark aspects of, of this nation's history. What did you find about other places in the world and the way that some of the, those countries had gone about marking these events of, of trauma? Mm. I think uh, f- the, for me. Uh, Berlin is pretty amazing. <clears throat> Sorry, there goes my voice. Um, and I, I call that the memorial city. But I think, uh, you know, social media has come a long way in terms of introducing you to other sites. And that's how I sort of discovered uh, the, f- 
the former Yugoslavian memorials and um, they how they acknowledge that in certain like some of these places like um, have these massive monuments and they are pretty yeah pretty amazing to visit and I think just how they're you know they're not afraid to uh, I guess create these beautiful things out of concrete mm. and um, I often think about um, the stone flower a lot because that's a holocaust um, where was it in Croatia have to always go back um, retrace because we've been to so many places and um, yeah I think it's for me uh, you know Australia should be embarrassed that there's nothing really of significance here uh, there are for you know Mile Creek and Appen and um, one memorial that has been unveiled at Elliston in South Australia, but um, I often think too that why don't Aboriginal people have something as big as the Shrine of Remembrance? Mm. Yeah, yeah, and so. it's that of course ongoing issue with the Australian War Memorial and the Frontier yeah. Wars not being acknowledged. Not there. there too. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's time to step up. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've gone and, and travelled to so many different places, but also places affected by nuclear events. And um, and I suppose, I mean, did you feel, I suppose they're, they're all places of, of trauma, but maybe different kinds of trauma. What Did you see that things were done differently depending on the, the kinds of events that, that were being memorialised in the places that you visited? Um, I think, well, you know, because we went to Maralinga as well uh, and... Um, my birthplace of Woomera too. So it's, you know, um, I think, uh, and Woomera was involved in, in somewhat, in, uh, in some ways uh, with, the, with those uh, nuclear tests in South Australia. So I think with uh, Hiroshima and Chernobyl and Fukushima, like Fukushima's sort of different, hey? It's yeah. so recent, I think. Yeah. The, um, but there's something weird that they all, <clears throat> I guess with Fukushima and Chernobyl, Yuani and I both felt there was, I hope this is the right word to use, like a sense of redemption because there was um, uh, kind of groups of people united around the area, um, either trying to regenerate regenerate it or, you know, that complicated history of even going into Chernobyl, like are you part of this like dark tourism kind of, uh, well, you are, mm. we, we were, I guess. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And I remember that was one of the questions we particularly asked the tour guide that took us into Chernobyl, like, how do you f- feel? And she was, like, 22, so she wasn't she wasn't even born, I don't mm. think, no, which, yeah. when it happened. It, yeah. And she she was really amazing. She'd studied Korean, I think, and mm. lived all over, like, in Southeast Asia. And she, um, she, she said that she felt like it was vital that this existed, the, the possibility of going into this place. She said not enough people in the Ukraine even knew about what had happened and that that it was a form of education and redistributing the the story I guess and when we went to Fukushima that was the similar vibe it was we it was like a test program tour Mm. that we went on that we found with a guy because it's not open it's open to some students in Japan to go through but mostly only for foreigners Mm -hmm. um, because there's still lots of political I guess conversations going on in the country about the site and I guess that was the most confronting for me I guess because it was so recent and the scale of it felt very um 
Well, big. Huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There's not really much of the, yeah. another word for that. Because you, you, you're taken to the site where the tsunami f- first hit the fish farm near the plant. So you get to see firsthand, like you're right on site there, similar to Chernobyl and Mar- Maralinga too. Yeah. And in Hiroshima, like you're right in the centre, you're right in the thick of it. So, and um, like, you know, th- I think, and it's the same, I think I've noticed the similarities between all all sites that we visited in terms of nuclear destruction is that they want people to be educated mm. and they, they want people to know exactly what happened. Yeah. That's really interesting then, um, particularly around Fukushima, you said that the, the visitors are from not from within Japan mm. um, and if it is an educational exercise, I wonder why not. Mm. I think they're still trying to figure out how to... I mean, it's only recently reopened, the kind of hot zones. Yeah. Um, and because there is so much... F- I mean, of course, fear yeah. and um, trepidation about being around nuclear kind of sites because um, because of the health concerns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Were you yeah. concerned? Yeah. And I suppose what precautions did you did well, you take when going to? Because you went to several sites. I take iodine tablets, but um, <laughs> I think they they tell you like in Chernobyl, you when you're in the tour cut in the car. You're not allowed once you're in the exclusion zone. You're not allowed to eat outside of the right. van, and um, not to touch the soil. Soil and pat the dogs. If you pat the dogs, uh, you're to wash your hands afterwards. And they test you when you leave the zone, mm. and you're told that um, if there's anything that is radioactive on your clothing, they take it from you. If it's not, if you know, if, if they've cleaned it and it's still there, um, and with the, it was the same thing with Fukushima too, that you are given information about what you will be exposed to mm. and what that level is. And the same thing with Maralinga. It's all the same. It's, it's the, interesting for people who, who work there as well and are potentially exposed on a, on a daily basis. It's durational, so people are right. only allowed in for certain periods of time and that's determined on the quantity of radiation in that area. Mm. And, I mean, as a, you know, like kind of like the POP the pop information that you're given, which is that you, you're exposed to more radiation flying on the plane than you are by being in the zone for mm. that duration of time. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, which is different because I think you were you were because they've just reopened where the control room was in Chernobyl, which I think you mentioned that was mentioned yeah. in the email, and yeah. it's like everyone has to wear a suit. Like I don't know if I'd. <laughs> I wouldn't do it personally. I wouldn't do that. Like, but um, yeah. But can... this is that idea of of dark tourism, as you mm. phrased it, Lisa. And um, uh, we should say we're, we're um, speaking with two artists who have just um, been to a range of genocide and also nuclear um, destruction sites and compiled a picture essay uh, for Art Journal Art Plus Australia. And um, Lisa Radford and Yuani Scarsa with us speaking about this. And I mean, what is maybe describe dark tourism? because I think people are starting to hear about it now and there is there's always a tension isn't there about you know being interested and wanting to get an education and be on site and experience it for yourself and also it just being yucky Mm. um there Mm. is uh, maybe it's the attitude that you take with you I'm not sure what what the difference is but why is it being called dark tourism do you think well I guess it's that that the the desire to visit yeah Yeah. places of extreme trauma and yeah um conflict Mm. I, I don't know whether – I mean, I remember travelling through the Balkans for the first time when I caught a train from, like, Turkey to um, – I don't know where I caught it to, 
Berlin or something, and being in Serbia and seeing the the remnants of the war from the 90s that I vividly remember as a kid and um, feeling quite confronted by that. But I don't know whether I would have ever chosen necessarily to go back had I not been invited by someone who, well, as to do something together to try to figure out I'm not something that is unrecognised in our place. And I guess that's a little bit the the difference maybe. Yeah, it, mm. it's interesting because I, I imagine often when people are visiting a place for the first time, they might decide that going to one of these sites of, of past trauma or whatever it might be is one aspect of their holiday. Then they mm. might go off to a beach or something and have a, have a lovely time. But you've kind of gone around the world visiting site after site. Mm. Was it emotionally taxing being in these places with a really kind of heavy weight of history? Yeah, I think, you know, particularly when we visited Wounded Knee in South Dakota, like that was pretty... It was extreme. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, like it's, um, you know, the the history behind or with that massacre was pretty, pretty, you know, intense isn't the right way to describe it. I think it was pretty... You could feel the the energy there in that site where... where, um, where it happened and we met with an elder from the Lakota community who um, told us about or showed us where it, where the military were waiting for the, this group of people and Lisa and I talked about how I um, thought or we thought that it was pre uh, predetermined that they were just waiting in order to ambush these people. So it was not just Lakota, it was Sioux, it was many other people and um and you know we purposely decided not to photograph the the place where they're buried so except for the sign the sign is really important because it gives that information mm. Mm. and um and i think yeah pretty pretty taxing i think yeah, yeah. it's also the varying scales i think of um memorialization and then that interplay between power or something for want of a better word Mm. so um like there was the weird links or loops where you've got like uh wounded knee and then places even like georgia and armenia which are are, were called ukraine actually like colonized places by the ussr or um and however long that colonization is and therefore you know that it's not just the massacres or the um that occurred, it's then this, like, roll-on effect of, like, economic displacement, you know. Mm. Um, mm, mm. And, and those 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 things become, uh, I don't know if overwhelming is the right mm-hmm. word, because it's like, how do you place the connections? And then where do you, how do you, like, how do you represent it? Is it representable? <laughs> mm, mm. Even? Well, that's a big question, mm. isn't it? When, when there's something that's so, you know, in many cases, horrible, horrific and, and traumatising, mm. what is proper representation for that? Mm. And, and how can it be done respectfully, I guess, and, and yeah. not yeah. taking advantage of, of, of a place that has kind of a very dark history? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, like I know with, with Maralinga, the, the community there have opened up the, the village and that you, do t- you have tours there because they can't live on the land anymore, like it was, you know, because it's contaminated. So what ways can they generate... Uh, you know, a living from not being able to live on their own country. And, it was, you know, Maralinga just didn't affect just that one area. It's across the whole state. The country, mm. we're like, we're a, we were a test site, essentially, yeah. for the British. And that I find that 
Mm. I guess that, I mean, sorry, go. Cool. No, no, this no, is no, no, go. Like, now I'm like passionate about it. <laughs> there's something about, um, what, shit, where were we? Uh, I, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, where were we? Um, and they do recognise the history and it, the, it's like the British are not. Mm. There's no recognition of that. They've lost the files recently. I mean, there was an article in the Saturday paper in May yeah. about, like, documents being lost. Mm, mm. And it's, you know, they were testing milk from all over the country. Mm. Like, it was occurring just before the 56 Olympics. Like, yeah. You know, yeah, it's not that long ago. No, no. And I think, I mean, this is you have put together a picture essay of the images. So, you know, 5,000 images that you've you've collected over between, what was it, December, November, December last year mm. and and today. And how did you go about choosing how to represent these places? Because oh. I imagine that was difficult because it was. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you haven't been able to, to include that many in, in the, the current picture essay. Um, yeah. I think we've we talked about which ones we felt were yeah important, and we knew like with wounded knee, it, it was the sign, um, and with Chernobyl, Pripyat because that's where people once lived, and I think with um, with others, it, I think it was, I don't know, like it was just something that we, mm. like you can't just. Um, Oh, it's coal a whole lot. You know, it had to be pretty selective, but even that was hard enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, do you plan to, to hold an, an exhibition or is there a life for, for these photos beyond the, the photo essay in um, yeah. Art Parts Australia? Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're in the process of working on an exhibition that we'll present in 2020, yeah. I think. Yeah. At, okay, are we allowed to say where it is? I don't know. <laughs> 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 We can keep the Margaret Lawrence Gallery at VCA, so uh-huh. I think we're doing a show there, but also with um, the Living Museum of the West in Maribyrn, which yeah, great. is yeah. kind of amazing archive. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, you know, these places live on and, I mean, there's not so many humans in your photographs because mm. I imagine there's not many people living in a lot of these places, but mm. but hum- humanity is there in these sites, which is amazing that you can capture that with, yeah. with no people in them because mm. I, I believe that they are living museums already so they have their keeper like their knowledge holders and um mm. you know keepers of this all this energy that's been left behind i think like they're pretty powerful and even just the people that we've met along the way makes it even more um beautiful i think like they even though they're they're in a some of them are in quite decrepit states like they're they're pretty stunning mm. and like the history behind those the reasons why they're created have been created is pretty you know pretty horrible but uh there there's something very special in the the reason why they exist so did you find that people who who do live around these places were kind of welcoming of, of people to come and and see them and, and learn from them or was there a bit of um, uneasiness, I guess, about that. I think, I think it's kind of mixed. I yeah. think yeah. Um, South Dakota, like Wounded Knee, was, um, you know, it was clear, clear we weren't from there. I mean, we rock up in a giant car, it's yeah. brand new for starters. But then in Georgia and Armenia, I think uh, what became really apparent was this, like a generational thing, where the generation before who had lived through Soviet occupation and under it, 
were still unsure about how to feel about the architecture that was left behind mm. and that was like the younger generation who were using it as sites for raves and like mm. parties yeah. and all sorts mm. of stuff but they also wanted to protect it because they saw it as a sign of their history and like what you know how to keep that knowledge I guess mm. not everyone but they kind of become contested sites mm. and I guess even I mean we did go to the 9-11 memorial mm. which you know felt like in terms of images like the most like most imaged <laughs> event that mm. we we encountered yeah yeah but um people still did want to talk about it and um, but there was lots of stuff that wasn't spoken like it was only put in arabic a few years ago uh, that it was the site of little syria before the world trade center was yeah. built like mm. those things were i kind of you kind of found out by people that you met around or outside mm, mm. of the officialness of it yeah, yeah. It was interesting too to witness um, how people were interacting with these memorials because mm. there were a lot of selfies, <laughs> and it's sort of like you're standing there and you're smiling in front of a you know a yeah. memorial, and it's not just 9/11; it was mm. others. Chernobyl was really interesting too because there were often group shots, and we were asked by our tour guide whether we wanted a photo in front of the sarcophagus, and we just like nah, because <laughs> like people died here, <laughs> like you know it's kind of. That's where that I think that idea of dark tourism comes in. Mm. It's sort of like people want people, you know. That yeah, and There's I think so, yeah, so many questions. I like think conquering yeah. something. I mean, mm. it's kind of friends just got back from Uluru, and it's that it's a similar. There's something the desire to own that, or I don't know. What that yeah, means. or dominate it, or and dominate I think it. and it's what I when we we visited uh, Auschwitz and Birkenau. Mm. And I'd had been there before, and then um, this last visit we did, I was pretty upset by what I had seen. Where you know you you enter Birkenhau, and there's on the right hand side is the the gas chamber, and on the left hand side is the uh, incinerator, and there's people again taking selfies and then playing with snow, like snow fights and stuff, and it's sort of like. Have a little bit of That's respect, jarring, yeah. yeah. And again, you know, jumping around, it's like, why are you doing this? Like, it's weird. And and I think all of those experiences and and the images you've captured, and I suppose the conversations you're starting or you know or continuing with others um, will inform us here, um, hopefully, um, and the way that we we should be marking sites of trauma in Australia. So I'd be really interested to see what comes of that. Thank you so much for no coming worries. in. Thanks for having us. Both yeah. of you, um, Lisa Radford and Yuani Scarce, and you can catch, um, well, you can read and and, and absorb their, uh, their uh, picture essay in Art Plus Australia and hopefully uh, see more of their work at exhibitions coming up in 2020. Journalist Margaret Simons is the author of the first biography of Penny Wong, who is, of course, Labor's leader in the Senate and Foreign Affairs Shadow Minister called simply Penny Wong, Passion and Principle. Margaret's popped by to tell us more about one of Australia's most respected contemporary politicians and it's really great to have you in, Thank Margaret. You nice to have you again. And uh, I suppose we should just start with Penny Wong was a reluctant subject. She was indeed, yes. I approached her for the first time in 2016 asking if she'd cooperate with a biography and got a very firm no and I dropped the idea at that point. And then the publisher, Black Ink, um, urged me to try again in 2017 after the vote on same-sex marriage, which, of course, she famously cried in public, very unpenny wong like And um, so I tried again and again got a flat no, but this time both the publisher and I thought 
well, you know, she's going to be our next foreign minister, we thought at that time. She's been a key part of that major social reform. You know, we really should do it whether she wants it or not. And so I set about work, but it was a full year of research before she reluctantly agreed to be interviewed. And, and what was it that, that led to her agreeing to be interviewed for this book? Well, what she told me, in any case, I mean, she certainly wasn't pleased at the idea of me doing it without her consent, but she didn't stand in the way of me talking to friends and colleagues and family, and well, family she did, but friends and colleagues. Um, and so I'd interviewed lots of people who she knows, including some of her closest friends and advisors, and I gather they gave me a good rap. There was one interview in particular with a guy called Don Freighter, who's a senior public servant in South Australia and a very old friend of hers. And um, I thought the interview had gone really badly, frankly. It was like pulling teeth. Um, and I walked out of there knowing that he'd probably ring her straight away, thinking, oh, well, I haven't done myself any favours there. But apparently that was it. Apparently said you should talk to her. So... That was good. Yeah, and mm. it's, it's interesting because I, I forget the words that you use, but this idea of you being sort of a, a shadow in her peripheral vision well, for that's that her whole phrase. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It was that what it. Um, yeah, but this um, idea of being that mm. for somebody. But I suppose as a journalist and a biographer, I mean, if the story is there to be told. Yes, exactly. It's your right to tell it. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand her objections. I think, um, you know, I can't stand the thought of anybody ever doing that to me, not that it's likely. But, um, yes, when I first met her, which was for a sort of off-the-record, which turned into a on-the-record meeting, really to discuss whether or not she'd see me again, and she said, you know, you have been a shadow in the corner of my life for this last year. And, what know, a compliment. Yeah, well, she, she gave me a hard time in that meeting. But, you know, despite her reluctance, once we were underway in the interviews, I think we actually got on quite well. Um, it wasn't all smooth sailing, but for the most part, I think she enjoyed the engagement, particularly over areas of policy. And very early on in the negotiations with her office, I had made it clear that I wanted to respect the boundary between private and public, because she's very protective of her partner and her children and her, her parents. Um, obviously their story is part of this story, particularly when you come to something like same-sex marriage and gay rights. Um, but, uh, you know, there is a line there and her children are very young and I made it clear that while I would approach members of her family, if they said no, I wouldn't be pursuing them or pestering them. You know, I'd take the first no as a no. <laughs> you write about one of the main kind of motivating factors or, or impulses in Penny Wong's career and life is this idea of practice, of praxis, sorry. Mm. And I wonder if partly you think her reluctance to, I guess, cooperating and endorsing this biography was out of that sense that she doesn't want to dwell too much on the past and look back. She's all about sort of looking forward and, mm. and finding solutions to, to problems. Is that a, a fair summation of another reason why she might have been initially reluctant? Yes, I think that's right. I also think that she is, has never been keen on personal publicity. Mm. I mean, she's had to learn to do that. And one of the ironies is that she's now very popular, particularly with the left, um, without ever having really sought that kind of popularity. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's partly that she is all about the policy, all about the action and would prefer entirely to avoid personal publicity, which of course is not possible. And relatively late in her political career, you know, she stepped forward on gay rights issues. It, she's, you know, early in her political career, she was determined not to be the lesbian candidate or the Asian candidate. She wanted to be a mainstream politician taken seriously on a broad range of policy matters. 
um, it was quite late that she stepped forward on that issue. She'd been um, active behind the scenes. And part of that, I think, is the inevitability of attention to her personal life that comes with that, um, you know, which she would prefer to avoid. Yeah, yeah I know. It's just mm. it's so interesting, that sort of idea that what the thing that you're trying to avoid ultimately um, is, you know, f- well, fundamental to her effectiveness as well as, uh, as a politician, although she is respected in policy matters, mm. but she has been able to progress issues because of who she is. And I wonder if we can step back into her early years because – Really, it is quite important to understand, I suppose, you know, how she came to be in Adelaide, her long history mm-hmm. in Adelaide with her family, her, her Malaysian, Chinese Malaysian um, ancestry as well, but also racism. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe give us a quick potted history of, right. of who, who Penny Wong is. Well, on her mother's side, she goes back as far in Australia as it's really possible if some, for somebody who's not Aboriginal to go back. Um, her great-great-great-great-grandfather, I think I've got the right number of greats there, um, Samuel Chapman, arrived in the sort of South Australian First Fleet, if you like, with Colonel William Light, the designer of, of Adelaide, um, and were there to witness the uh, ceremony under the old gum tree which created the colony of South Australia. Um, but on her father's side, she um, comes from North Borneo, in the, which is now part of Malaysia, but wasn't when her father was born. Um, and he, in turn, uh, comes from a Chinese ancestry, a mixture of Cantonese and Hakka. And the Hakka people are a very particular ethnic group, and I think Penny identifies with her uh, paternal grandmother, who was Hakka, um, very strongly. She was an incredibly strong woman who really kept the family together through the Japanese occupation of North Borneo during the Second World War incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, she was left, the, Penny's grandmother was left as the only surviving member of the family, uh, adult surviving member of the family with five children to care for. Um, and only the male children survived the war. Um, her daughter, uh, as an infant in the most appalling hardship, was left by the side of the road in the hope that somebody would adopt her who could um, afford to feed her. Um, and Penny is named after that child. Her her middle Chinese name is after the first daughter of her grandmother. Mm. We're speaking with Margaret Simons all about her biography of Penny Wong, which is called Penny Wong, Passion and Principle, the first ever biography of Penny Wong, Australia's Labor Party's leader in the Senate and um, Shadow Foreign Affairs spokesperson. And it's interesting that Penny Wong didn't ever really want her ethnic background or her sexuality to be central to her identity or how people saw her. Yet you write in the book that racism very much made the person she is. And she came into Parliament in 2001 in those heady times around Tampa and and Mm. so on. In what way has that informed her politics? Oh, look, I think it's defining of her, you know, both as a person and as a politician. Um, and she would she would nominate, I think, anti-racism as one of the reasons she's in politics. Sexuality, not so much. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, so her father came to Adelaide to study architecture as a Colombo scholar, met her mother through mutual friends, and they married and returned to Borneo, and Penny was born in uh, Kota Kinabalu. Um, and then the marriage failed and she arrived back in Adelaide in, in rather a rush, or that's how she remembers it, with her younger brother Toby. 
And, of course, this was 1976, which is a long while ago, but it was immediately before Australia really began to change in terms of Asian immigration. Um, so it was Malcolm Fraser's um, administration which really changed the face of Australia in that way. The white Australia policy was already gone, but um, the immigration had been cut at the same time, but it was Fraser who increased immigration and opened it up to Asian immigration. But at that time, Toby and Penny were the only Asian faces in the suburb, and they suffered enormously from racism. It's just awful to remember back to those times. There was a neighbour who shouted over the fence, calling Penny a slanty-eyed slut. Um, racist graffiti was um, put on the pavement outside their home. And at school, she and Toby were subject to constant bullying, um, sometimes physical, but constantly verbal and abusive. And this really formed her. Uh, the way she puts it herself is that she became tough, obviously. She developed a fiercely guarded internal life, which is one of the reasons she doesn't like biographers. Um, but also she uh, resolved to outdo her persecutors, to be um, better at them in everything. And she set out to excel, which, of course, she has done. Toby was not quite so tough. He was more fundamentally affected. Um, and as I say in, this, in the book, very shortly after she was elected to Parliament, um, he died by suicide after a very troubled period. Um, she blames that on racism, and she blames it partly on John Howard. Mm. And it's, a, I mean, that is just, it, the, the book is full of really very touching moments about the person who Penny Wong is and the things that she's dealt with really I mean that she she did speak about her brother in in Parliament and uh, but really she's been very private all through um, the sort of challenges that she's faced and focused on what she can do for Australia and to make Australia what somewhere that her daughters can to, can be in and, and thrive in and I mean it's very admirable but she's also part of the party machine and yes. I think this you know to ignore that and Penny Wong would be you know not right and you do show us um, or we'll talk about Adelaide and and the ALP in Adelaide and the Mark Butlers and the Jay Weatherolls and, and and I mean how important is Penny Wong and the Adelaide Labor Party to to mm. Labor's story in, in the contemporary era? Well, it's really important. And, you know, Penny's rise as a politician is associated really with an increased influence of the left in Labor, but particularly the South Australian left. And so it used to be that the South Australian left barely didn't exist on the radar. Um, one of her early mentors, Nick Bolkus, was probably the exception to that. Um, and, of course, in the past, there have been people like Mick Young and so on who'd been involved. Um, but uh, we now have Penny Wong, leader of the opposition in the Senate, Mark Butler, shadow climate change minister and a key factional player, um, and uh, Jay Weatherall, of course, former Premier of South Australia um, and a former partner of Penny's, um, is uh, about to announce the review of the last election result that the Labor Party's been doing, which he's been heading up. So South Australia has become, you know, quite... Uh, crucial, really, um, in opposition politics. Mm, and she, I mean, she is of the left, but at the same time, she's very much pragmatist and a negotiator, and which has put her in conflict with environmental interests mm. over the years, which is interesting because she has been a water minister, she's been a climate mm. change minister, and, and she's also worked for the CFMEU as it is now, wasn't then. Uh, mm. So she... That is interesting that yes. she's... I mean, where is she sitting now, do you think, on environmental 
issues. Oh, she certainly, I think she would still call herself an environmentalist, but she is also a pragmatist. So I think one of the key themes of the book is um, that her willingness to compromise and make deals in order to retain influence and the ability to make change. And a lot of people might argue with where she draws that line, but it's a clear-headed commitment to being part of the party, maintaining party unity, including at considerable personal cost, in order to retain influence. And you're quite right, she's, I think, we have this tendency to hook onto politicians who appear to be different and then assume they're somehow outside or above politics. Well, Penny Wong is absolutely inside politics, and that's kind of the point. <laughs> and there appear to be in your book, from, from um, your quotes of Penny Wong, that she seems a little bit frustrated with those on the outside who have criticised, like, for example, her initial stance, which was towing the party line in terms of marriage equality, and she became obviously a very prominent um, advocate for that uh, mm. in the lead-up to the, the postal survey. But she kind of suggests that, you know, people who criticise from the outside don't know the reality of, of the hard work that's done on the inside yeah. and what have they really achieved for equality anyway. So do you get a sense that she is at all concerned about that public image and where that intersects or, or contradicts um, her personal values? Look, I'm, I'm putting words into her mouth a little bit here because I don't think she has said this in so many words, but I detect a, a certain frustration with those who, and on, on the left, who maintain purity, if you like, of principle and are impotent um, and who would criticise someone like her, but also others, of course, who cut deals, including on climate change. I mean, the Greens are the, the main advantage um, example of this. You know, I think she has contempt for the Greens. Um, and that is largely because, of course, the Greens voted against climate change action with the coalition um, during her time as climate change minister. And if they had voted differently, we would have had a price on carbon for quite a few years before Abbott came to power. And maybe Abbott wouldn't have come to power um, or maybe the coalition wouldn't have come to power. You know, history would have been different. So it may well have been that uh, Rudd would have remained... Prime Minister. Um, he might have won the election that in fact Labour lost. But regardless, the scheme would have been in place for long enough so that even if the coalition had come to power, it would have been very difficult to unpick it. And she blames that on the Greens. And, you know, historically, she's right about that. And that is just one example of how she would say, you know, the Greens weren't happy with the targets. They thought there was too much compensation to industry. But at least we would have had a scheme. I mean, if that had happened, we'd probably still be arguing about targets and compensation. Right. Well, you never quite know, do you? But this <laughs> yeah. idea—I mean, I, I actually did laugh when um, that, that discussion around the CPRS. So this idea of a price on carbon is in one of the chapters, which is Penny Wong fails to save the world, part one and two. Yes. <laughs> which and look, we don't—you know—we don't give our our politicians a, a free kick. And I think, mm. but what is interesting, even though Penny Wong has been there through the Rudd. Gillard Rudd mm. years, uh, she has been, you know, she supported uh, Anthony Albanese uh, mm. against Bill, Bill Shorten but still served Bill Shorten. And, but anyway, she's come out the other end as cool. Mm. Now, 
explain that one. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, there's a chapter in which, which I open by saying, when exactly did she become cool? Because if you go back to her time as water minister and climate change minister, she absolutely wasn't. She was under attack from the right and from the left and from everyone. The Greens couldn't stand her because they and thought she was And finance minister? Finance minister, how dreary is that? And an awful time to be finance minister, you know, trying to chase the surplus that never happened. Financial uh, crisis, financial etc. Oh, yep. just, you know, a shocking time. And she was attacked by people like Don Watson for using dead political language. And if you read some of her speeches, not so much her speeches, but her media statements through that time, you know, he's not wrong. I'm certainly going to notice <laughs> certain phrases now after yes. reading your book. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, she wasn't cool in government, really. I mean, she had her, she still had her fan club, but um, she wasn't really massively popular. It was opposition, the experience of opposition, really. You know, those incredibly cutting um, Senate estimates things, the eyebrows. Um, So at some point in that period after Labor lost government, Penny Wong became identified, I think, as, as one of the, you know, in the public mind. She had been internally for quite a while as being cool and it was around that time that you began to hear people say why won't she be leader of the party particularly with people who perhaps didn't like Bill Shorten. Um, well, well that, that's interesting because mm. uh, you, it seems like she uh, went into the Senate because she was a little bit reluctant to run for the House of Reps knowing there would you know most likely be some kind of backlash against mm. her, her ethnic identity and her sexuality particularly in the early 2000s mm. and there is this kind of yearning for Penny Wong to be our PM which of course she can't be as some Mm. who is in the Senate. But why is it, do you think, that, um, you know, at this time that we're, people are looking at, to someone for Penny Wong? I mean, does she... It doesn't really matter whether she is LPM or not. It seems like at this point in time she wields quite a lot of power within the ALP and has a lot of people's ears. Yes, she does. Um, I mean, the main, as you say, she can't be Prime Minister while she's in the Senate and she has been entirely consistent in public and in private, including with, you know, very close friends who have urged her to consider taking on the leadership of the party or or seeking it, Um, you know, totally consistent all the time, saying she doesn't want that job. Um, But she is leader of the opposition in the Senate. She is enormously respected and influential. Um, A lot of that because of things behind the scenes, as you say, things like she backed Albanese for the leadership way back when Bill Shorten became leader, but she served Shorten faithfully. Um, She doesn't leak. She doesn't resign in a huff when she doesn't get her way, all those sorts of things. Um, And she is part of the leadership team. Now, it's not uncontested, of course. Uh, For example, she is a shadow for foreign affairs and Richard Miles is shadow for defence. He's from the right. They would disagree on a fair few things, I I suspect, and we saw that play out just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, While Richard Miles was talking about the US and China, Penny was in Jakarta, making an enormously significant speech, I think, which was largely overlooked by the media, urging the countries of the region to come together, um, you know, not to be a slave either to China or to the USA, but the countries of the region to come together to seek um, new ways forward. Mm. Yeah, you write in this uh, biography, Margaret, that uh, it's complicated being Penny Wong. Mm. Was that is that like a big takeaway for you from writing this biography? I mean, oh, and enormously I suppose, complicated. Yeah, and what? Why? What is it? Well, I'll adopt the words here of one of her friends, uh, Carol Johnson, who's a political scientist at Adelaide University, who has written about the way in which the Labor Party began about getting a fair deal for um, white 
men, white male workers, basically, and saw social justice as basically being about that, about a fair wage for white male, white men, and of course the white Australia policy, uh, the Labor Party's history is at least as racist as uh, the Liberal Party, more so in some ways. Um, now, Penny Wong is both simultaneously an artefact of the broadening of that agenda to embrace women, first of all, but also people of different ethnicities. Um, so she's a personification of that, and she's also one of the people who's brought it about. And that's a very difficult position to be in. You know, she was entering Parliament now. Would it be possible for her to win a lower, class, a lower house seat, which at the time it was assessed that her race and her sexuality would be a barrier to that. Maybe it wouldn't be now. Mm. Mm. A, a big question also in this book is the extent to which Australian democracy and our political processes can deliver on the needs and, and demands and, and challenges of our times and so on. And you write how uh, you know incredibly demoralised and, and exhausted Penny Wong was after the, the election, the federal election this year, which of course many people thought was a shoo-in for the Labor Party. Do you have much of a sense that as she's emerged from that, whether I, I guess she is confident or whether you feel we, we do have the processes in place mm. to enable us to kind of step up and, and meet some of the challenges? I mean, on climate change, for example, we've been faltering for years and years and mm. to seemingly, you know, no end. Yes. No, well, I do think that's one of the big questions of the book, but I don't offer an answer to the extent that there is one. I actually agree with her. What alternative do we have but to use the political processes that we have to try and achieve change? Um, I, you know, what we have no, we have developed no alternatives as, a, as, as human beings to democracy. It's the, uh, the best worst system or the worst best system. Um, but, yes, it is, you know, hugely... Almost tragic, I think, um, for a woman of undoubted ability, and she has respect across the political spectrum and passion and principle and all the work that she has given and the personal sacrifices. And yet if you look at her time in government and her two portfolios, they're both in a terrible mess. Now, it's not her fault. I'm not blaming her for that. But to give yourself to that and then achieve this result... As I say, it's it's tragic, really, politically tragic, but also at a level personally tragic. Well, mm. considering that since 2001 she spent most of that time in opposition, it's good that she's uh, excels at it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what will come, of course, for, for Penny Wong in the future, but we do know now that she has come to appreciate this book. I understand that she will... Yes, I, she, I, that may be too strong a do word. You, do you think it's going to be in her family's Christmas stocking this year? Do you think she's going to be giving it out? Or That's a good question. I don't know. I haven't seen Penny since our last interview, which was in early July, and I'll be seeing her again this Friday when she's participating in a launch event in Adelaide with John Faulkner. And yes, the fact that she has agreed to do that, which was not simple, but uh, the fact she's agreed to do that, I take as meaning she doesn't completely hate it. But it might be too <laughs> might be too much to say that she um, that she appreciates it. Well, that's an achievement nonetheless. <laughs> yes, you just yes. need to judge by her eyebrow position, and, and that's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, of course, she gets to speak from the stage, and I'll just be sitting and listening on Friday. She may roast me. Who knows? <laughs> well, um, Margaret Simons is our guest. Uh, she's the book biographer of Penny Wong. Um, it's called Passion and Principle, subtitled Penny Wong. It's a biography of her. She's an important contemporary politician, of course, and uh, I think, Margaret, you've done a stellar job really scrutinising Penny Wong and, and her and her achievements, but also giving us a picture of, of the person that she's, you know, been quite guarded about, but I think is really valuable contribution. So thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.